Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Dave Shooter. Well, there are more of you this morning than I thought there would be, which, you know, I mean, you don't get more credit if you signed in on the Church Center app for being here. But I thought if we were smaller, I'd do like some live Q&A and ask, if there is a smell or an aroma that you particularly associate with Christmas. Does anybody want to take me up on that question? Cinnamon. Uh, Hand over there. I see that hand. Hey, you're from last night. Yeah, you raised your hand last night too. We we have a streak going. I, I can't hear you. Oh, well, uh, my, my, my question was, what smell do you associate with Christmas? Okay, well, those pretty good answer. You've got one? Everything in Christmas. Everything. Okay, that's comprehensive. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do two. I've got to do two more because they're siblings, and I need to save the rest of Christmas for the family. So, ladies before men. Cookies and the toys have an aroma. Like gift wrap. Okay. All right. I, I am not here to argue with you about that. I don't know what your family wraps gifts in. <laughs> well, thank you to the first and last ever sermon Q&A <laughs> in the history of NPC. This is, <laughs> that's, that's, that's great. Let's close in prayer. Um, mine, mine, mine would be ham because uh, that was my, gr- my grandfather's favorite. I only knew one of my grandfathers. My dad's dad died when my dad was very young. And, uh, and so I only knew my mom's dad, and he was all about ham on Christmas Day. And so the aroma of ham uh, baking is evocative to me on Christmas Day. And my, my grandfather was all about putting cherry sauce on ham, which I don't know if that was a thing for you or not, uh, but it was for him. Uh, but it wasn't really for anyone else in our family. And so what that meant was he would get a can of cherry pie filling and heat it up on the stovetop. And so ham and cherry uh, is Christmas Day for me. And I was, I was curious about the evocative power of smell this week. So I, I Googled it and quickly was out of my depth scientifically. But there is a, a theory uh, from really smart people that suggests that the sensation of smell bypasses parts of the process in your brain and goes directly into memory. So, so that is what, I mean, that's a theory. I mean, don't like, I'm not going to bet my life on it, but it, you know, it's from some folks at Harvard and they, they thought that, that smell bypasses other neurological processes. And that's why smell is particularly evocative 
uh, maybe even more so than sight, how you can smell something and it takes you instantly back into a memory. And I wonder, I wonder what aromas Jesus might have associated with the story of his birth. Because particularly in the gifts of the Magi, fragrance makes an appearance. And you know, nothing in Scripture is uh, redundant. It's all important. And, and the gifts of the Magi are instructive to us and help us remember why we worship the newborn king this way. And so let me draw our attention just to a couple of the lessons that we learn uh, as we think through the gifts of the Magi, and particularly the sensation of smell as it might have operated in Jesus's life, and certainly as it holds out lessons for us as Jesus's people. First, there is the aroma of recognition, I might call it, the aroma of recognition. We shouldn't wonder that the Magi chose perfect gifts for Jesus. I know that can be a stressful thing. You know, maybe today you haven't done gifts yet, and you wonder if your gifts are going to be perfect. You wonder if you've wrapped them in the appropriate smelling gift paper for your family, and uh, you, you just wonder if, if they are the perfect gift. But the Magi give Jesus perfect gifts. They're religious leaders. Uh, they uh, come from a long tradition. They used astronomy and astrology and dream interpretation to understand the spiritual world. They were pagan priests. It was serious business. It was a vocation. Uh, this is not really their first appearance in the Bible, that the, the, um, the priests that Daniel encounters in Babylon, if you, you remember the story where Daniel is interpreting dreams, those, those are magi. Uh, they would be called magi uh, during that era. And Daniel, of course, out-interpreted them. But one of the things that that teaches us is that for at least 600 years, magi lived alongside of Jewish people in Babylon. And there were, in the, the vocation of being magi, professionals who were interested in what Jewish people believed. You know, because that was their job to understand the spiritual realm. So living for six centuries alongside of Jewish people, these magi would have understood all of the Jewish expectations for the coming king. They, they surely would have learned a lot about God's work. They would have learned a lot about how God spoke in the Old Testament. They would have heard of this ancient promise to King David that King David would have a descendant who would rule forever and over time, they would have learned uh, the Jewish hope that when this king would come, this royal king, this descendant of David, he would institute uh, a global reign, that the coming king of Jews was to be king for the whole world. And so that they arrive with gifts that are fit for royalty. And gold, of course, would seem like a self-explanatory gift for a king. But more precisely, God said that when his glory returned to Israel, nations would come to Israel bringing caravans of gold. In Isaiah 60, verse 6, this is what God says, A multitude of camels shall cover you. 
The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All of the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. Now, Sheba and Kabar are in modern-day Saudi Arabia. And Nebaioth is in modern-day Jordan. And uh, the picture is of these caravans of wealth, and you caught gold and frankincense in there, uh, coming from the nations to Israel, recognizing that uh, the king who has been born in Israel deserves their honor, deserves their worship, and is a king to them, which is uh, just in <laughs> uh, just in first glance, a powerful word for us if we sometimes feel like outsiders to what God is doing in the world. And if we feel like outsiders to what God is about, the gifts of the Magi help tell the story that in Jesus, God comes to be king for all people. Uh, that Christmas is a story uh, of the ultimate king coming to make outsiders insiders. Uh, people from far away into his family. And this helps explain why frankincense is a perfect gift too. Because frankincense is used throughout the Old Testament in worship. The aroma of incense became associated with God's holy name. God says through his final prophet Malachi uh, in chapter 1 verse 11, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great. Where? Among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So uh, the, the bringing of incense and the burning of incense would be a sensory reminder that God's king is king for the nations uh, and that it is right for the nations to come and to worship the greatness of the God of Israel. And even more precisely, the aroma of myrrh is associated with the royal descendant of King David. Psalm 45, verse 7. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh. That, that the, the descendant of King David, the, the Messiah, would be, um, how does it say? All fragrant with myrrh. Gold, frankincense, myrrh, gifts for God's king, king for the whole world, worthy of the worship of the nations. Now, if you... Uh, uh, if you are a child, you know that and all of us will have had that experience. Uh, you know that your parents love to tell the stories about your birth. Uh, we, we are contemplating whether uh, we should bring, you know, Jonathan's baby book uh, this afternoon when we go and meet his fiance, just so that she can be properly introduced to all of the stories of young John. And there are many. But I, you, you can't help but imagine that Mary and Joseph... Uh, would have told Jesus uh, about the visit of the Magi, about the gifts that they would have carried. I mean, there is a, a tradition that speculates uh, that these extravagant, 
extravagant gifts were used by Joseph and Mary to pay for their uh, travel to Egypt to escape King Herod. But that's just a tradition. We don't know that. We don't know that that's true. It's possible that they held on to at least some of these gifts for a long time. Uh, and it's, you, you, you might be able to imagine, uh, you know, toddler Jesus, young child Jesus, uh, teenage Jesus. Saying, Tell me about the myrrh. Tell me about the frankincense. What does it mean? Myrrh in particular becomes not only the aroma of recognition that Jesus is that descendant from King David, but it also becomes an aroma of rejection for God's ultimate king. Can you remember another time when myrrh shows up in the story of Jesus? Well, we're introduced in Matthew 1, verse 1, to Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, each name being important, uh, son of David, the king to whom God promised would sit, would sit always on Israel's throne, son of Abraham, which is less a comment about Jesus's ethnicity and more a comment about his calling, uh, because it was to Abraham that God promised one who would come who would be a blessing for the whole world. Uh, that, that there would be, that uh, through childless Abraham and Sarah, ultimately uh, a growth of a nation. And from that nation, there would be one who would bring blessing to all of the world. So son of Abraham introduces Jesus as that one who's going to bring blessing to the whole world, to Jewish people and non-Jewish people alike. And so it's no mistake in Matthew's gospel that the first exuberant worshipers of Jesus are non-Jews. That, that the first ones who can't get over how awesome it is that they get to meet Jesus are not Jewish people. There is a, a little bit in verse 11, uh, well, verse 10 of Matthew 2, there is a, a mashup of vocabulary uh, that in the, in the Greek, um, I won't explain what it is, but basically Matthew runs out of words. When he says that, that, that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, that, that he doesn't have any more words to describe how ecstatic the Magi were to meet the baby who's going to bring blessing to the entire world. But the way that he is going to bring blessing to the world involves his rejection. The story is familiar, but just as a reminder, the rejection of Jesus as king by representatives of other kings, for instance, Pilate in Mark 15, saying, what shall I do to the man that you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And as Mark tells the story, myrrh becomes the aroma, not only of recognition, but the aroma of rejection. Mark 15, 21. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. The wine and myrrh mixed together were a basic anesthesia. And they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots 
deciding what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him and the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. Now, we can't know for sure if the aroma of the myrrh in that moment reminded Jesus of his birthday gift from the Magi. But we can know that the aroma of the myrrh in the moments of his execution were the scent of rejection. The, the rejection of God's people, of God's king. A rejection which Jesus fully anticipated three times elsewhere in Mark's gospel. Jesus speaks to his disciples with words similar to these. Jesus says in Mark 10, See, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Why? Verse 45 of Mark 10, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom, of course, a, a payment made by one person for the freedom of another person. Jesus' shorthand of his mission is to be a ransom for many, which is why on the cross he says no to the myrrh. Why on the cross he says no to the to any kind of anesthetic that might have helped to dull the consequences generating the punishment for all of the sin that we commit, all the ways that we fail to love God and love neighbor. And so amazingly, the aroma of rejection is one that our king willingly breathes until he breathes no more, in order to exhaust, without any shortcut, God's judgment on our sin. It's amazing to contemplate the love that he has for us in that moment, when, when all, already on the cross, already dying for our sin, they offer him just one small, one small relief, and he doesn't take it out of great love for us to make sure that all is exhausted, the aroma of rejection. But finally, the aroma of rejection becomes the aroma of resurrection. John reports at the end of chapter 19 and the beginning of verse 20, this story, Nicodemus, uh, the theologian who came to Jesus the beginning of John's gospel at nighttime, to interrogate him. Nicodemus also came by night, uh, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds in weight. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to him, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Jesus' resurrection is resurrection to new physical life with all of the physical properties congruent to the physical life that we have, but in some ways modified or enhanced or changed. 
physical life with all of this tangible, sensible uh, quality. So contemplate the kind of aroma that would be generated by 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe in a sealed cave. Uh, imagine what that would smell like. It was intended to smell intense because it was intended to mask decomposition. But imagine what it would be like, and it's hard to imagine that one of the first things that Jesus experienced in his resurrection was, was other than the aroma. I'm alive again. Because, you know, what's the first thing that you do when you resurrect? I assume you take a breath. You, you, you take a breath. What would he breathe in? All of the aroma of, of all of the myrrh. And uh, what could it have told him other than the aroma of recognition that had become the aroma of rejection that was now the aroma of victory. It's like, I, I am that king and I died that death and now I am alive again. Mission accomplished. Death defeated. Sin accounted for. God's people redeemed. The aroma of victory and I can imagine in my mind's eye that Jesus, newly alive, inhaling this overpowering aroma and all the stories flashing before him, mom and dad, telling him about the Magi, the time that they showed up with gold and frankincense and myrrh. Who were they? Well, they were kings from far away who had believed that God would send his king. And they wanted to come and they wanted to worship you. And, and, and he surely would have remembered the opportunity that he had on the cross. Myrrh and wine mixed together. And, and knowing that he is the king who has come not to live an aloof royal life protected in a castle from all harm, but to be the kind of king who goes into battle for his subjects at the front of the army taking to himself what his subjects need to survive and then rising to new life to confirm to us that he won. Mission accomplished. That the gifts of the Magi ultimately teach us about mission accomplished. Gifts of recognition, rejection, and victory in resurrection. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast. And for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.